gospel account, I'd like to turn at this time to John's gospel account, all of these God-breathed accounts, but different. The Lord has given to us four different portraits of our Lord Jesus Christ, complimenting one another, revealing to us from different angles the wonders of his salvation. And we turn to the gospel according to John. I'd like to focus on verse 14, but to read the first 18 verses of this gospel. John begins much further back than Luke's gospel account does. John 1 at verse 1, the very word of the Lord. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. This man came for a witness to bear witness of the light, that all through him might believe. He was not that light, but was sent to bear witness of that light. That was the true light, which gives light to every man coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness of him and cried out, saying, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me is preferred before me, for he was before me. And of his fullness we have all received, and grace for grace. For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, who is in the bosom of the Father, he has declared him. To read verse 14 once more. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Shall we bow and ask for God's blessing on his word? Our Father in heaven, how rich we are in the gift you've given and in the revelation of it, that you've given light from heaven that we may know. And we pray that you'd visit us this morning in the midst of all of our joy and excitement and the many things happening in these days in our lives yet, Lord, to bring us back to what happened at the center of history. We pray, Lord, you'd speak to us by your word, that we could behold the glory of our God in the face of Jesus Christ, and we could be changed. We pray, Lord, that you'd strengthen the faith of your people. We pray today for any who have not bowed the knee to Christ and have not partaken of his salvation, that even today might be the day when in the midst of darkness the light would pierce the soul and the mind and the heart would be delivered from itself 
from sin and captivity into the glorious liberty of the children of God. In Jesus' name we pray this and for his glory. Amen. The Congregation of Christ, I'm not sure if you have a, a favorite Christmas memory or a favorite Christmas from your childhood, but if you have one and you think back this morning to what that was, that, that favorite Christmas of your childhood, I suspect that what would, what would come to your mind would, would be not only a group of people, maybe not only a certain food or, or gift, but what would be part of that memory, if we thought about it for a moment, would be a building, a place, a, a living room, a family room, a, a, a home, a dwelling. And you know, that's the way it is. God puts us in places. And yet, not always in the same place. Most of us, maybe all of us, don't live in the home we were raised in or born into. At least for the adults. Children are still going through the process and the progress. But life is like that. You move from one house to another. And often there is progression, isn't there? Maybe as you grow up, you move into perhaps a dorm room at college or into an apartment. And if the Lord grants it to you, then maybe into a house. Maybe you get married and move into a, a starter home, as they call it. And if the Lord grants children, then, then maybe you have to look for a bigger house and you, you look for a family home. And so there's this progression and this sequence of buildings. And it goes that way also for congregations. This congregation began, was it at, at Aldersgate? I don't remember, was it in the Tabernacle building? And then renting a Seventh-day Adventist building, a, a rental facility, and then building a building. And so there's progression. And I bring all that up because over the past weeks, we've been watching the progression of God coming to dwell with man. And if you're a visitor with us this morning, we've been looking at the past weeks, how that went. That we, having been expelled from the garden, broken fellowship with God, God is returning to fellowship with us. And he has a tabernacle built, this mobile home. A tent in the wilderness among the tents of his people. And then when he brings him in the land of Canaan, he has a, a permanent building, the temple built. And then he gives that temple into the enemy's hands because it had been defiled by the idols of his people. And then as we saw yesterday, God brings them home from captivity, has them rebuild the temple, a building. And so there's this progression. Now, we can understand the nature of progression in buildings when it comes to our personal lives, our family lives, and our churches, and that necessity of progression has to do with need and with money, right? When you're 20 years old, you don't buy the family home because you don't need it and you don't have the money for it. When you're a church of 15 families, you don't build a great building because you can't afford it and you don't really need it. But when it comes to the progression of the Bible, those are non-factors, right? Because from the start, when we broke fellowship with God by our sin, we needed fellowship. We needed God and his glorious grace. And for God, it wasn't a, a lack of resource. God didn't have to save up to build the ultimate temple. God has all resource. He's God and he from before the foundation of the world, had committed himself to expending everything he had, even his own son. So then the question, why? If it wasn't about need and it wasn't about funds, why didn't God send Jesus to the Garden of Eden and save us at the beginning? Why? Maybe the comparison with our own homes and church buildings is helpful. What happens when you go through that progression? 
from dorm room to apartment to starter home to family home, from rental facilities to building your own church building. Well, one of the things that happens is that you grow in your ability to appreciate and to be thankful, to be thankful. Remember after living for the first five years of ministry as a single man in an apartment where it had been all whited out, many, many coats of white paint over everything, over every trim, every piece of everything. When we, Joy and I got married, I mean, we bought a house. I, she talked about painting the walls. I said, well, anything except white. Put color on the walls, anything but white. Right? You, you learn to appreciate. You learn to value. How could the church have been ready to receive the Lord Jesus Christ from heaven if we hadn't learned how desperate our need was? If we hadn't seen our lives without being filled with the glory of God? If we hadn't, as the church, gone through the Old Testament era of, of forsaking God and sinning against God and bringing idols into the temple and realizing we are a wicked people, could we have ever been ready to receive the gift from heaven? But God brought the church through those Old Testament years of preparation that there might be waiting and praying and learning about how desperate our need is, about how costly it is for God to come and dwell with sinners. And then at last, as Galatians 4 says, in the fullness of time, in the fullness of time, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son born of a woman. And that's the center of history, the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. And all those Old Testament Tabernacles, temples were just so many foreshadowings, so many prophecies of what was to come at last, the temple of God, who is Jesus Christ. Let's look at John 1.14 and think about two things. First of all, what did the word do? And secondly, what did the witnesses see? What did the word do? And then what did the witnesses see? We read that the word did two things. He became flesh. And he dwelt among us, and they go together. Now, in those opening words of, of John 1.14, the word became flesh. You have two things put together that you never, in your wildest imagination, assume would go together. Word and flesh. Word is reference to the Son of God, eternal, and flesh is reference to us, weak humanity. How does God, the Son of God, become man? This is the breathtaking mystery and wonder of Christmas. Think about those shepherds out in the field, boys and girls. The shepherds were out in their fields keeping watch over their flocks by night. Suddenly, the glory of the Lord shines around them. And they're terrified. And they're told that the Savior has come. That the moment all of Israel has been waiting for is here. The Savior is here. And then they, they tell the shepherds that this Savior, the Son of God, you'll find him. Wrapped in cloths, strips of cloth, that's how they wrapped babies back then, and lying in a manger, the feed trough of an animal. Now John leaves us no doubt as to who this is. In the beginning, that's how he begins his gospel account. For every Greek-speaking Jew, and even for every Christian today, when you hear those three words, in the beginning, the next word you say is God, Right? We all know Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And John is, is referring to that. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. The Word is the eternal Son of God, the very self-expression of God. He 
communicates through his son, the word. And John is echoing that wonder and telling us the identity of the child. He's the eternal son of God. He is the eternal creator. John says he comes from the bosom of the father or the side of the father. John will use that language one more time in his gospel account when John, the gospel writer, referring to himself, says that at that last supper, he was lying at the bosom or in the bosom of Christ because in those days they reclined at the table with their elbow on a pillow often and their head back towards the chest of the one behind them. And John, the disciple loved by Christ, was near to Christ. And that's the, the idea here. This son, the word, was at his father's side. He was, he was at his father's chest. He, he was in the closest of, of love and fellowship. He eternally basked in the wonders of his father's eternal love for him. And this word became flesh. The babe lying there in the manger is the one who, who made the shepherds, who made their sheep, who made the grassy hills, who created Mary, who formed her womb. This is the one who is born of Mary now. The Son of God, the eternal God, takes to himself real human nature of the flesh and blood of Mary while remaining 100% God. It doesn't say that God turned into a man, that the word turned into a man. No. Remains God, but by way of addition becomes a man. So he is 100% God, 100% man in one person. In the Old Testament, God appeared in human form at times. In Greek mythology, the gods might come down in human form. But... Now, this moment of history, the Son of God, the Word, becomes, he became flesh. He didn't put on a costume, a human body to zip it up and then take it off. He took up a real human nature, body and soul, and was united to that nature, never to lay that nature aside, but for all of eternity, the second person of the Trinity is now Jesus Christ, God and man. And how can we ever stop being amazed at this wonder, right? That God has become a man, that the creator has become a creature, that the, the infinite God has become finite, that the almighty now is a, an embryo in his mother's womb in the midst of darkness, that he's a, a helpless child in, in her hands, that he's laid in this manger. What a wonder. And then you read on in John's gospel account and we find out he's wearied and he needs a drink at the Samaritan well and he... He weeps, he's, he's grieved at the loss of Lazarus, and he, as the, the realities of the cross impinge upon him, he, he is burdened and troubled in his soul. He is a man. The word became flesh. And not flesh as Adam had it, perfect flesh in the garden, but, but now sin-weakened flesh, subject to, to corruption, to sickness, to decay, to misery. And then you think about Luke's account with these angels singing to those shepherds, chanting praise and announcement on that day. These angels know him. For centuries they have known him and they knew him above. They called him Lord and King and Master and God. They beheld his glory. The angels, the cherubim and seraphim, shielded their faces in the presence of his radiance. This is God. And now they're beside themselves to announce to the shepherds that the almighty creator of heaven and earth 
is lying in a feed trough. But he whose native land is eternal glory, worshipped for centuries since creation by angelic beings, has come from the dark recesses of his mother's womb to be born into this, not just a stinky stable, but into this mess of our sin and rebellion and a world that is turned against its maker. People of God, the links to which God goes to live among his people, it's amazing. If you're not a Christian and you read these kind of accounts in the gospel, then, then you think oh, that's all, you know, make-believe, fairy tale, legend. This is science fiction. A God becomes man. And yet for the Christian church, we know this is the central mystery of our redemption. That the eternal God becomes also flesh. What did the word do? The word became flesh and he dwelt among us. He dwelt among us. You almost wish the English translations would actually use the word that, that John writes. He tabernacled among us. And again, for all the Greek-speaking Jews, as soon as they read that, their minds would have raced back to the Old Testament, to the tabernacle. He pitched his tabernacle, he pitched his tent among us. Those amazing things we've seen in the past weeks that God commanded his people to make a sanctuary, and God said, Exodus 25, you build a sanctuary and I will dwell among you. And so here they are. It's not that God needs a tent. It's not that he's like a God made of wood or stone or metal. It can't. You know, you don't want to be beat down on the rain. It might fall apart. It needs a tent. God is not that kind of God. Why does God want a tent? He wants a tent because his people are living in tents. And so he says to Israel, I will have my home, my tent pitched in the middle of your tents, and I will dwell with you. And you will know where to find me. Here's my address. In the middle of your camp is my tent, and I will be your God. But now... At this climactic moment of history, the Son of God comes in human nature to tabernacle among us. One writer says, yet in the midst of this ungrateful world, he manifested his supreme love. From the infinite sweep of eternal delight in the very presence of his Father, the Word was willing to descend into this realm of misery, to pitch his tent among sinful men. Christ is the fulfillment of the Old Testament tabernacle, and that tabernacle had two functions, revelation and reconciliation. Revelation, because God told his people, I will meet you at that tent. And you read in Numbers chapter 7 that when Moses went into the tabernacle of meeting to speak with the Lord, he heard the voice of one speaking to him from above the mercy seat that was on the ark of the testimony from between the two cherubim. Thus he spoke to him. We have a desperate need for revelation. By nature, we, we live in darkness. We are, we are ignorant. We don't know God. We can't know God. We don't know ourselves. We don't know why we exist. We don't know what our purpose is. We don't know how sinful we are. We don't know that we're under God's wrath. We have darkness in our minds and hearts. But God reveals. God tells. God shows who God is, who we are, and how to find God. And so all throughout the Old Testament, God has been revealing, he's been speaking, he's been showing himself. 
But remember how the book of Hebrews begins, that God in various ways in the Old Testament spoke to his people through the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us in his Son. In his Son. Through whom also he made the world, who being the brightness of his glory. We've been in the past weeks tracing the coming glory of God. The glory filled the tabernacle. The glory filled the temple. But at this center of history, he who is the very effulgence, the very radiance of God's glory, the Son who is the image of his Father, the glory of God comes to us in human flesh. It's about revelation, but the tabernacle was also about reconciliation. Who can forget all the sacrifices there, all the blood spilling? It was all, it was all telling God's people that, that without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness. That unless there is life that's substituted for your life because you deserve to die, unless there's a life that takes your place, unless there's blood that's spilled in the place of your blood, there is no fellowship with God. And Christ has come in human flesh to be that substitute. No angel could die in our place. No goat could die in our place. Only human life could take our place beneath the penalty of God's curse. And so the eternal Son of God becomes one with us in human nature so that he might step into our place beneath the wrath of God that you and I completely deserve. And he might absorb that penalty. He might suffer that curse. And he might set us free and reconcile us to God. That there might be fellowship between God and man. And so by the end of this first chapter of the Gospel of John, Jesus is speaking to Nathanael. And Nathanael's amazed that Jesus saw him before he saw him. Before Nathanael came close, Jesus knew him beneath the fig tree. And Jesus says, oh, you think that's something? You're going to see something greater. You're going to see angels ascending and descending on the Son of Man. And it's a reference, isn't it, to, to what Jacob saw in Bethel, that vision of a ladder or staircase, a communion between heaven and earth. And now Jesus says, I am that ladder. I am that staircase. I am the bridge between the holy God and sinful man. There's fellowship with God through Jesus Christ. In John chapter 2, Jesus is standing in the temple, and he actually cleanses the temple, and the religious leaders are upset, and they say, give us a sign. What right do you have to do these things? Give us a sign to show us your authority. And he says, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it again. And they say, that's crazy. It's taken 46 years to build this temple. And what they mean is that the temple we saw yesterday, rebuilt after captivity 500 years before this, has been in the process of a great remodeling expansion project in the hands of Herod the Great for the past 46 years and will continue. And they think Christ is saying, tear down this building and I'll build this building in three days. And John says he was actually speaking about his own body. His body is the temple. His body is where heaven meets earth. His body is the place where there's revelation and reconciliation with God. Amazing. Hebrews 2 tells us it's not angels he helps, but Abraham's descendants. 
There's angels who fell away from God, and they are never to be recovered. But Abraham's descendants, humanity, for them, Christ becomes like them, one with them in the flesh, to die their death and to reconcile them to God forever. Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of everything we've seen. He is the glory of God come to earth in human flesh. And then, if that's what the word did, the word became flesh and tabernacled among us, what did the witnesses see? Well, John says in John 1.14, And we saw, we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Now, we often say that in Christ's humanity, his glory was hidden. And John's actually telling us that in his humanity, God's glory is revealed. John and the other eyewitnesses, John and the other apostles, saw the glory. Now, what did they see? Did they see radiant beams Shining from his face? No, not literally, but they saw the glory of God in the words and the works of Jesus. In John chapter 2, at the wedding in Cana, when they run out of wine, Jesus miraculously turns water into wine. And then you read in John 2.11, This, the first of his miraculous signs Jesus performed in Cana of Galilee, he thus revealed his glory... And his disciples put their faith in him. So Christ's whole ministry is a revelation of glory. In, in every deed he performs, healing someone who's sick. In every, in every casting out of a demon and setting a life free. In, it, in every word of compassion and word of truth, he's revealing glory. And what was that glory? John says it was the glory as of the only begotten God. The only begotten Son of God. This was no ordinary glory. This was no glory from earth. This is a glory from above. This is not the glory of an Old Testament prophet or priest, even the high priest. This is the glory of the only begotten. It could be no other glory but God's glory. And what's amazing is that in John's gospel, that glory is revealed in the cross. John 12, Jesus speaks of the hour when he will be glorified. And he's talking not only about the resurrection ascension to heaven, but he's talking about the cross. And when Jesus Christ, the Son of God in our flesh, is lifted up on that cross, the glory is revealed. The glory. Now, how can that be? When we think about God's glory, we often think it just means the majesty of God. But it doesn't. The only way we can actually know the majesty of God is as the glory of grace. The glory of God's grace. And that's what John is saying here. We beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. What is grace? What is grace? Grace is God's undeserved favor. towards undeserving sinners. Grace is, is to be given what you don't deserve. You deserve the wrath of God. You're given something else, the goodness of God. 
In order to understand what John is saying here, I think you actually have to go back to Exodus 33 and Exodus 34 because there God's people, while God's glory is being revealed to Moses on Mount Sinai, they're down at the bottom of the mountain making the golden calf and worshiping the golden calf. And God is angry. And so he says to, to Moses, take the people, go on up out of here because I'm not going to go with you. I will not go up in your midst lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. And so God says, it's not safe. It's not safe for my glory to be near you. It will consume you. And Moses intercedes and he pleads for God's people. He pleads. And he says, if your presence doesn't go with us, don't bring us up out of here. And so God in his mercy relents and says that he will go with his people. And then Moses makes this remarkable, remarkable request. Imagine this. Moses says to God, because Moses wants to be sure God's going with them. Moses says to God, please show me your glory. And God says, sure, Moses, I'll just show you my majesty. No, that would destroy you. God says, I will make all my goodness pass before you, and I will proclaim the name of the Lord before you. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. Moses wants to see God's glory, and God says, okay, I'll make my goodness pass before you. So then you know the story. God sets Moses in the cleft of the rock. And we read, now the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed. This is Exodus 34. The Lord descends again in the cloud of glory. And the Lord passes by and the Lord intones his own name. He proclaims himself. What does he proclaim? Verse 6, Exodus 34, 6. And the Lord passed before him and proclaimed The Lord, the Lord, God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abounding in goodness and truth. In goodness and truth. Or other translations say in love and faithfulness. And it seems that John, when he says in John chapter 1, that we beheld his glory full of grace and truth is is echoing that now, full of love and faithfulness. The idea is this, that God's glory has come to us as the glory of grace. The mercy and love we don't deserve. And it's come as faithful grace. That God, when he says, I'll be your God, I'll fellowship with you, he doesn't pull it away tomorrow. It's, it's true grace. It's faithful grace. It's constant grace. John says, you want to know what we saw? When the Son of God came down and in our humanity became a man, we beheld the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace, faithful grace. Normally, the glory of God consumes sinners. Boys and girls, why were the shepherds so terrified out there in the field? Was it just because suddenly there's a bright light and we're not used to lights at night? No. The shepherds were terrified out in the fields because, Luke tells us, the glory of the Lord shone around them. God's glory was visiting them and it caused them to tremble in their sandals. 
We're going to die. But the gospel says the glory that appeared was the glory of grace. And now it all comes together and you grasp the good news of Christmas morning. That God's glory, which is the manifestation of his presence, has not come in simple divine majesty, which would burn us all up and consume us up because we are sinners, but it came to us in grace. And so God's glory meets us now, not in a tabernacle, where the only thing that might shield us from God's glory are some, some curtains, And God's glory doesn't meet us now in a temple where the only thing that shields us now is the blood of some some lambs. But God's glory now meets us in the person of his own beloved son who has come in our flesh to die our death, to cover our sins, who's our great high priest, who has compassion on us, who's won in the flesh with us, who's won the victory, who intercedes for us. God has been pleased to give us his glory as the glory of grace. And at last we have Emmanuel, God with us, and forever. And the only question this morning is, do you know God's address? In this world of so many sorrows and sins, in this world of so many distractions, in this world of so many places you might like to visit in your lifetime, in this world of so many different houses we've lived in, Do you know God's address? Do you know the one place in the world where you can meet God? There's only one place. There is only one temple. You meet God and his beloved son, Jesus Christ, who is one with us in the flesh, who's died our death and risen from the dead and ascended to heaven and who's coming back one day that we might enjoy the fullness of God's glory. You know, the Westminster Shorter Catechism asks, what's the chief end of man? To glorify God and to enjoy him forever. And yet, so many in the world have no idea about a God who's worthy of being glorified or how it is that anyone can enjoy God. But through the word of the witnesses, we too have seen, we also have seen, The glory is of the only begotten, full of grace upon grace. That's what John will say. That from his fullness, verse 16, we've all received and grace for grace or grace upon grace. One crashing wave after another crashing wave of God's mercies and God's love and God's forgiveness and God's kindness to undeserving sinners. And for those who've known that, then the coming of the glory of God that will one day fill the whole creation doesn't terrify us. But now we know this glory is the glory of grace, full of grace and faithfulness to us. And so we look forward to that. If we don't know Jesus Christ, that day is terrifying and people will cry out for the mountains to fall upon them and hide them from the wrath of the Lamb. But today is the day of salvation which Jesus calls sinners to come. And he says that my blood has opened the gates for you. There's a way to come into God's presence and not be consumed, but to be blessed, blessed forevermore. So I ask you finally again this morning, do you know God's address? Have you met the living God in the face of the Lord Jesus Christ? Have you brought yourself and all of your sins 
to the feet of Jesus and the feet of his cross and said, I need not the glory I can create for myself by buying a bigger house and a nicer car and becoming more popular, making a name for myself at school or in my business. The glory I need is God. But the only way I can have that glory is as the glory of grace. Lord Jesus, I come to you. I come to you. To the one who has come to me, the living God, lying in a manger, hanging on a wooden cross, lifted up to glory, returning again. I look at you. And in you I find my life, the reason for my existence. In you I find the forgiveness of all of my sins. And in you I find my hope that I will see the glory of God and I will be satisfied. If you can't say all of that this morning, then the coming of the glory of God is a terrible thing. It will consume you. And there will be no escape. But today is the day of salvation. Here we sit upon earth. And in the scriptures we behold the glory of grace in the word of Christ. And Jesus says, come. Come. Come to me and I will give you rest. There's nothing so perfect, so satisfying, so beautiful as the glory of God's faithful grace in Christ Jesus. Amen. Let's pray. O Lord, our God, we are humble before your magnificent gift. How lightly the world has treated the only begotten of the Father, the eternal Son of God. That we crucified him and nailed him to a cross and murdered the Lord of glory. And yet, Lord, still you call us and still you assure us that your glory is filled with grace for all who will come to Jesus. God, grant us humble hearts to acknowledge our sin, our inglorious lives, and to find your satisfying glory through Jesus Christ. Exalt your name by saving many through your beloved Son. We give you thanks for him. Receive our hearts in Jesus' name. Amen. Number 319.